Well, let's stand up and read. Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. Come back to the Herod family. All right. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And listen to this. And said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Okay. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then the disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. And... Uh, we thank you that you report history as it actually happened, uh, as a part, Lord, of the history of redemption. We as humans can make some pretty ugly history, but um, by your grace or through your sovereignty, you do give us beauty for ashes. Pray that you would uh, teach us from your word this morning, you encourage us, and help us to draw application uh, from, from John. And uh, so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I right, go ahead and be seated. It's always exciting to come back to the Herod family. Quite a bunch, those guys. So let's go back to verse 1 and 2, and we'll begin the discussion. So, so at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So who is Herod the Tetrarch? What report did he hear about Jesus, and why did he come to that particular conclusion? So Herod the Tetrarch, uh, Tetrarch was not his given name, it's a title. Uh, Tetrarch was someone who ruled over a fourth of a province. Now his father ruled over the whole thing, and, and when he died, uh, Herod split his father's kingdom up into different parts and gave them to his, his sons. And this particular boy got a quarter of the province, so he was called a tetrarch, as opposed to an ethnos and then king in that particular order. This Herod, uh, though, so of course, is not to be confused with his father, Herod the Great, who uh, we studied a little bit, who was a cruel and jealous man, as well as an insecure, mass-murdering madman. Uh, Herod was the king who slaughtered all of the male children in Bethlehem trying to uh, be sure that he eliminated the Jewish Messiah. Uh, he had quite the track record. In his jealousy, he murdered his wife, uh, Miriam, and uh, two of his sons that he had with her, uh, Alexander and Aristobulus. But uh, thankful he is dead at the time of these events in Matthew 14. Neither is he to be confused, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, with his brother Herod Archelaus, who ruled over the southern district of Judea, and he got a larger share originally. Um, he was the um, ethnarch, 
not ethnos, but ethnarch. Um, this is the Herod that when Jesus and his family, because remember they, they fled to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod the Great, on their way back uh, to Israel, uh, it was this particular Herod, because Herod the Great had died, that Joseph avoided going to Judea because he was also, like his dad, a crazy, bloodthirsty madman. Okay? And so he uh, went around Judea and went up to Galilee uh, to his hometown. Uh, this man, Herod Archelaus, for his harshness toward the Jews, he was deposed of his position in 6 AD, and then he was banished to France. So he too was out of the picture by the time that our narrative takes place. We're currently about 29, 30 AD. Yeah. Herod the Tetrarch, his given name was Antipas. We actually hear more about Antipas in the New Testament than the other Herods. He was the brother of Archelaus. Uh, Antipas ruled over Galilee and Perea. Uh, Perea was on the east side of the, the Jordan River. He ruled from 4 BC to 39 BC. did okay for a Herod. Uh, until he too was banished to France. Uh, now, I hope that he didn't run into his brother in France because it was Antipas and a bunch of Jews that got Archelaus banished. Uh, and then the emperors banished them both together. So, very interesting. The problems with Antipas, though not as bloody as his father and brother, were bad enough, uh, some of which, of course, come out in the text. Matthew tells us that Antipas, uh, that he heard the report about Jesus... The context implies that he heard of the mighty works, of course, the miracles that Jesus had been performing. How could you not hear uh, about things like that in uh, a community? But to his superstitious mind, which was perhaps being kind of haunted by his dastardly deed, he concluded that Jesus was actually John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now, how many of you guys would have concluded that? So I can't say exactly why he said something as ridiculous as that. Uh, there was no uh, religion at the time that would support the idea that when people rose from the dead, that then they had the ability to uh, work miracles. But, you know, the thing is, superstitious people say superstitious things. You guys ever been around really superstitious people? Usually you have to leave the country or go to Louisiana, okay? Uh, <laughs> to find that. Uh, when I was in Kenya, uh, there was a pastor who attended the pastor's conference, and uh, we were on a, uh, well, I was on a break. Uh, Aaron Strobach had me teach 12 times uh, in 10 days that I was there. Uh, I'm going to pay him back one of these days. Yeah. After one of the sessions, this pastor and I were talking about uh, all of the Muslim influence there in um, Likoni, especially around the church and how essentially no Christians lived there or owned any property really except for the guy that rented the church out, uh, the building out to the church. And according to this pastor, the only way to effectively change the Muslim influence in the area was to burn candles of specific colors around the church property. The expression on my face was less than agreeable, okay? <laughs> and I realized that there were other things that should be covered in the pastor's conference besides hermeneutics and homiletics and the rest. Um, yeah. The pastor had assimilated some of the local superstitions into their Christian faith, something that we call 
syncretism, religious syncretism. Uh, Catholics around the world are notorious for this, but it was actually my first encounter with a professed evangelical uh, that had actually uh, syncretized pagan things into the Christian faith. Uh, Not a good combination. So I uh, quickly told Aaron all about it, and uh, he did some eye rolls and some other reactions, and I don't know what he did with it, but uh, very interesting. So, and I hope that you realize that the burning of candles for such a purpose is a waste of good candles, right? It's a waste of uh, precious time that could be spent praying for and evangelizing that Muslim community uh, that was right there. So candles do not do anything but emit light, okay, and create black marks on your ceiling. So that's all they do. Anyway, Antipas believed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead because he was performing miracles. Yeah, superstition. And as you guys know, I'm not superstitious because it's bad luck. So, that's right. All right. So, but it was probably on, John was on his conscience because he murdered him. Let's continue in the text. He says, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. We have another Herod, okay? Who is this Herodias? She's the former wife of uh, Antipas's half-brother, Philip. And to make things even better, she is the niece of Antipas. Great family. So that makes her his weiss or his knife. Knife probably is more accurate to her character, okay? If the Herods weren't killing people, they were stealing their brother's wives and committing incest, okay? So how did this happen? How did this uh, marriage occur? Well, sometime around AD 29, Antipas was on his way to Rome, uh, probably to petition the emperor for something. And on his way, he visited his brother Philip on the coast of Israel. And during his stay there, Antipas and Herodias, they seduced one another. And she agreed to marry Antipas if Antipas dumped his first wife, who was an Arabian princess, the daughter of uh, Aratus IV. So he dumped his wife. And on the journey back from Rome, the, this ambitious Flusi left Philip and became the wife of a tetrarch. Okay? Family reunions were never the same after this. Okay? Now, I say ambitious because this particular Philip was a nobody. They had a, there was another Philip that was one of the Herods. He was also a tetrarch, but I don't know why she didn't go after him, but she got her tetrarch. Okay? And, of course, would later petition the emperor to make him king. Very interesting, okay? So why did she want John in prison? Because John had said to Antipas, it's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So, of course, John the Baptist, being the kind of guy that he was, uh, and filling well the role of prophet in Israel... He confronted Antipas about having his brother's wife. According to the law of Moses, the marriage was unlawful, it was immoral, it was incestuous. Now you can look at Leviticus 18, uh, verse 16, and chapter 20, verse 21. It all condemns this sort of arrangement. Now Antipas probably didn't appreciate the rebuke, but it didn't bother him nearly as much as it did Herodias, okay? And for her sake, he wanted to dispatch John, wanted to be her hero. But because of so many of the Jews 
believing that John was indeed a prophet, Antipas restrained himself. What he did not want was a riot among the Jews. Uh, Oftentimes when there was a riot among the Jews, uh, governors, tetrarchs, and the rest got deposed. And then they got banished to places like France. So there there was advantages to keeping the peace. So instead of beheading John, he imprisoned him. And uh, yeah, we'll come back to John's actions uh, later. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So there's nothing like having your stepdaughter, Salome is her name, uh, who is also his great niece, dance seductively for a bunch of drunk men at a birthday party. Real classy, okay? And Salome was a lot like her mother and probably intoxicated himself and wanting to show off to his guests, Antipas promised to give this girl whatever she wanted for her performance. So she, having been, of course, prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, that is, at his party, he commanded it to be given to her. Now I imagine that uh, by this time, uh, Herod may even have forgotten about the incident with John, uh, but Herodias, not so quick uh, to forget. She had read deeply into John's rebuke and took it for a swipe, and it most certainly was. Uh, at their morality, uh, just like it was for Antipas. And uh, Herodias, though uh, she was indeed ambitious and a flusy, uh, she saw the opportunity, uh, as we basically said before, to trade in her second-class husband for a man of power and wealth. So whatever her marriage to Antipas was about, it wasn't about love. And now that she had this position, she wasn't about to let some Jewish peasant insult her. No way. So when the opportunity presented itself to where Antipas could not refuse, she called for John's blood. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So now she's more than a floozy. She's a vindictive, cold-blooded killer, just like her grandfather and her good old uncle, Archelaus. The apple did not fall far, did it? Yeah. History could not say goodbye to the Herods fast enough, especially uh, not fast enough for the Jews. And so, of course, the disciples of John, they come and they take the body of John and they bury it. And then they brought news to Jesus, not just because John was the forerunner of Christ's ministry and in many ways partners in the preaching of the kingdom, But as we know, Jesus was the close relative of John. Uh, They were cousins. So that's the tragic story of John and the tragic story of the Herods. Uh, But it's John's example that I think is important to us. I think it's really important. And it's because of John's example and the example of many other uh, prophets and people of God in the scriptures that I want to address the issue of the believer's responsibility to influence government officials and their governance. This should be fun, yeah. Now, we've already spent a little time talking about um, civil disobedience. Uh, We did that, both of that, discussed it and 
uh, offered our civil disobedience when during COVID there was the lockdowns and we refused to comply and we believe we have we had biblical justification for doing that. Uh, we do not believe that the, the government has jurisdiction over the affairs of the church. Uh, that is the, solely the jurisdiction of Christ. And uh, so in obedience to Christ, we got together, we fellowshiped, we, had, we did Acts 2.42 and Ephesians 4. And um, we were obedient to Christ, not in order to be disobedient to the government, um, but we believe in a greater authority. We've done that. Uh, there's more to explore, I'm sure, with that in the scriptures. But this morning, I want to look at John's actions and then a few other uh, people's actions in the scriptures and what it could mean for us as believers. And probably like you over the past few years, uh, this subject has become increasingly important. Uh, it's, it's become important to me for a number of reasons, simply because I love people, and uh, I want to increase righteousness, and I want to decrease evil in my community. Um, I'd like to do it in the world, and uh, that's what World Missions is about, uh, but what about our, our community? Um, and as you know, one of the biggest players in propagating and advancing evil in our culture is government. Uh, from, sever, from civil government to the leadership in our schools and our colleges. Uh, if you're paying attention to what's happening in colleges around America, it's, it's a mess. Uh, but government policy, an overreach, even the things the government uh, ignores is destroying the moral conscience of our nation, especially of our children, uh, at an increasing rate through racism, sex ed, uh, socialist indoctrination, Recently, my son got an earful of uh, CRT, uh, critical race theory, from his professor at Centralia College. Uh, government is creating hostility between the various ethnic groups and genders with our, uh, in our society through CRT and segregation and DEI. Uh, government is rapidly increasing uh, the rights and protection of criminals over that of law-abiding citizens. Uh, government is increasingly diminishing our liberties by various means, uh, taxes, the, uh, the censoring of contrary speech and beliefs. They're intentionally subsidizing more and more people, which we know destroys people's lives. It, it, it just annihilates their dignity and their motivation to uh, contribute to the commonwealth, to be as God created them. They're enabling the drug epidemic. Uh, they're quickly removing the rights of parents. I could go on, and uh, you guys are familiar with all this stuff. I, I want to influence as many kinds of governments and as many levels of government as I can in order to restrain evil and to advance righteousness. How about you guys? When you look at your children and your grandchildren, is that something that, is, that, that, that you feel? Uh, you want to pass on a society, a culture, a community that is safer, that has more righteousness in it. Now, when I talk about this whole issue and the actions we should take, I do not necessarily mean that we should become political, at least how I define uh, what it means to be political. I know pastors who are, and I'm very, very uncomfortable with how they publicly engage in politics. I have no intentions or aspirations of running for office of any kind, 
uh, or publicly getting behind a candidate. Uh, I refuse to have my name, uh, my face all over something political. The reason is I don't want to cut myself off from reaching a certain population within the community. Okay? If I'm cut off from a segment of the population because the gospel has offended them, well, I don't really care. Okay? Jesus said that would happen. Uh, if, if I haven't uh, pushed them away because of my character, uh, but it's purely because of the nature of the gospel, uh, that's, that's just the way that it goes. Uh, but I'm not willing to sacrifice my influence on the altar of politics. Okay? So I want to be behind the scenes with all this as much as I can. Uh, God has called me to church polity, okay, to spiritual leadership, pastoral ministry. Um, I have no aspirations at all of ever shepherding unbelievers. Okay? Uh, I'll disciple them, uh, I'll preach to them, but I don't want to have authority of any kind over them. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We can get into that another day. But if I can influence officials to align their behavior, uh, their, their governance even, with morality that is consistent with God's character, I want to be all over that. Amen? I'm into it. Uh, God's moral law, which comes from God's character, should be reflected by his image bearers. Okay? Especially when those image bearers have influence and have authority over other people, okay? Man has a moral obligation to be moral whether they're saved or not. I hope that we all can agree on that because people have often said to me, uh, how do you expect the unsaved to do that? They're not saved. I mean, they behave like unsaved people. Well, first, all people know right from wrong. Both scripture and good reason support that. Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 16, uh, for one biblical example. How many of you guys have read Mere Christianity? Okay, I think that's a pretty good example. How many of you have read Feet Firmly Planted in Midair by Greg Kokel? Isn't that a great title? It's called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. Okay, it's great. Demonstrates all of these truths. Okay, but of course, knowing uh, right and wrong does not determine what you do. People know that drugs are harmful and they still do what? Yeah, yeah. We take moral risks, we take physical risks, okay? A man is driven by selfishness, pride, thrills and desires for evil in various forms, but it's because man knows right from wrong and because they want people to treat them rightly that they are accountable for their acts of evil and the evil that they support. That's also Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 11. Also, if unregenerate man is incapable of living up to a certain level of morality, God was unjust when he destroyed the earth with a flood, annihilated Sodom and Gomorrah, killed Judah's wicked sons, and destroyed the Amorites. And how could Jonah call the Ninevites to repentance if they were incapable of repentance? If man wasn't responsible for some level of morality, God could not justly condemn him. But God has the divine right, and I would say in his own nature, he has the responsibility to judge man because he is morally capable. And I could go on for hours about man's moral capability and culpability. And, and if you don't believe that man is morally capable and culpable, you should not discipline your children for disobedience until they're saved. How many want to risk that? Yeah, you know better. So John's actions and the actions of other prophets and the people of God in the context of influencing government officials, I want to just look at that with you. I want us to be thinking about it. 
and consider how it might apply to us. When John uh, went to Antipas, Matthew simply records the matter of his unlawful marriage, but Luke tells us more of what John said to Antipas. Here it is. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by John concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. He didn't just confront him about Herodias. He called him on all the evils which he had done. What does that mean? So I was telling Roger, John the Baptist brought a scroll. And then Roger said, and it had a left-hand column and a right-hand column. Okay. There was a lot said. Okay. Now, John wasn't exactly known for diplomacy or tact. Okay. But Jesus did call him the greatest prophet that ever lived. So I don't want to criticize his, his method, okay? And I love John. I respect him greatly. Uh, I'm not quite as bold as him. Um, I'll preach the exact same message, but I think I'll do it a little differently. And I think that's why I probably identify with Paul uh, a little more, his style, same message, but different method. And I think that his example is important in this whole context. Uh, when Paul was in prison in Caesarea, that is on the sea, um, if you've been to Caesarea, it's not a bad place to be in prison, okay? And he did have liberties to where he could, you know, move about. But he had an audience with Governor Felix, and this is how it went. Now, as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. As he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Isn't that fun? You're behind bars, and you're reasoning with a very powerful government official, and in your conversation, he is visibly afraid of the discussion of what you have talked about. It's great. Now, I love this whole uh, way that Paul does things here. The Greek word that is translated as reasoned is the word dialegomai, my dialegomai. It means to speak back and forth. So Paul wasn't quite the same as John. John would just come and uh, he would throw a grenade out there and, uh, and see how the dust settles, okay? But Paul, as was his, his, his style, he would engage in an intelligent conversation about morality and the coming judgment. He was doing that with a governor. So Paul was trying to be persuasive. He was trying to convince him of the truths of these things. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. We see this in Acts 17, verse 2, and again in verse 17. Uh, Acts 18, verse 4, and 19. Wherever Paul went, he was trying to be persuasive with his audience. He was reasoning with them. He did Q&A. He, he dialogued with them. This isn't just a great example of how we should engage with people in gospel preaching, but how we should engage with government officials, not just for their salvation, but to influence the way they govern, the way they govern. Our primary goal should always be a person's salvation, but there are secondary goals that we should also try to achieve in the process of seeing them to faith. The way governors govern affects the lives of people for good and for bad. So why would we avoid the chance to influence their governance? Why would you do that? Why would you not try to, to get them to change the way that they govern if their governance is evil, if it's unfair? 
It's unjust. I mean, don't we want our leaders to be moral? Don't we want that standard to be passed on to the next leader? Don't we want our community to hold leaders to a standard so they govern a particular way? If we want that, don't you think we should be a part of helping guide their decision-making if we can? I do. God has ordained government for the purpose of rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. That's Romans 13, 1 through 7. So who's going to communicate that to governing officials if we don't? I mean, they don't exactly like have their devotions every morning. Okay, that's up to us. While in prison, Paul took the opportunity to influence Felix for Christ and to elevate righteousness and the virtue of self-control. And when Paul explained that Felix would be held accountable for his unrighteousness, Felix was afraid. You guys, that's a positive response, by the way. When people begin to process the truths of redemption and, and condemnation, man, if they're afraid, that's, that's a good thing. Judgment to come is a great motivator to examine one's morality and their eternal destiny. So Paul clearly wanted Felix to come to faith, but I believe he was also concerned for those that Felix governed. I believe that, okay? Paul demonstrated his concern for righteous governance uh, when he rebuked the high priest. You remember the high priest had Paul struck on the mouth by one of the temple guards and Paul rebuked him, not the guard, but the high priest for governing unlawfully. So he, he wanted good governance. It's Acts 23, 2 through 3. Jesus did the same when he rebuked the Pharisees for their unrighteous and hypocritical leadership. Daniel did the same with Nebuchadnezzar. This is by far the most impressive one of all. When he was pleading with the, the most powerful emperor to walk the earth, pleading with him to repent, not just for his personal sin, but for the way he governed. I love this. It's my favorite example. Look at what Daniel said. He says, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. See both of them? It's great. And in and, and this whole thing, there's, there's one thing that's clear. When you, when you look at Daniel's interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, he loved this wicked man, pleading with him, pleading with him. But here, Daniel doesn't just show concern for Nebuchadnezzar. He shows concern for those that Nebuchadnezzar governed, doesn't he? He does. He counsels the king to break off his iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. That's everything related to his governance. Daniel very humbly and lovingly was calling the most powerful man in the world to repent. He is calling him a sinner. You're a sinful man, O king. I'm pleading with you to repent and do the right thing in here and out there. Now, I do not believe that Daniel was being political by influencing the king. Do you? I don't think he was. He was trying to win the king to righteousness and get the king to govern with mercy. He addresses both there. Concern for the leader's soul, that's extremely important, and concern for those that he leads. It's a great model, isn't it? It's a great model. John the Baptist, Paul the Apostle, and Daniel the prophet provide, I think, plenty examples of some of God's greatest men who tried to influence governing for the governor's sake and for the governed. Isn't that enough biblical precedent to at least have that in our mind, praying for those that are doing that, people that have influence? Something else that's important to point out 
is that none of these men that we've looked at this morning were under a democratic form of government. The influence uh, in those forms of government uh, that a person could have was essentially nothing, but when opportunity presented itself, they took full advantage of it. I mean, God even told Paul, uh, I'm going to bring you before kings and governors. Why? So you can preach to them. So you can affect their lives and the lives of others. But see, that's not the case with our form of government, albeit very flawed. We live in a democracy, and there are numerous ways that we can influence gov governance, especially locally. And by the way, locally, I think, should be our primary investment, primary one. Now, other than voting, there isn't much we can do in regard to federal governance. But right here in our county, the cities we live in, uh, we can have a lot of influence, especially as the church grows, okay? And as more people come to faith across the county, people are discipled in the community, we can do more. Is there strength in numbers? Absolutely. We can help influence our city councils, our school boards, the kind of material that comes through our libraries that our kids are exposed to. I don't know if you guys are keeping up on the kind of materials in middle school libraries across the nation, sex ed stuff that is absolutely pornographic. We can affect the kinds of teachers that teach our kids. We can affect the governance of our county through the commissioners, our city, through mayors. We should be doing all we can to ensure that we have good leadership in law enforcement, that we have good judges with moral backbones. Recently, we uh, bombarded our commissioners with emails regarding the issue with YMCA, uh, their intentions of doing business here in the county. Two out of three commissioners voted against the YMCA. I'm, I'm excited with how that little experiment turned out. Um, and I thank you for participating in that and uh, protecting our community and our children. There's much more to do. Uh, you know, various agendas are being pushed on our schools to destroy the moral conscious of our children. As I said, sex education, uh, it's not anymore just teaching kids about reproduction and, and so forth, but how to fornicate, uh, teaching children how to have homosexual sex and other immoral acts, and, and almost all of the material is graphic, uh, illustrations and things like that. As children struggle with their gender, uh, that is being hidden from the parents, helping children get abortions without their parents' knowledge or consent, uh, if you're watching the studies now being done on the results of CRT, uh, critical race theory in schools, uh, it teaches white children that they are racist by virtue of their skin color, and, uh, and it teaches people of color to be racist. Now, if I teach that in my own house, it's going to be a very confusing place. Okay? Uh, that would fit well into when Paul talks about doctrines of demons. It is demonic. Okay? Of course, socialist ideas are being advanced. Uh, indoctrinating children in schools. The government wants to be, and they've stated this very clearly, they want to be the greatest influence in the lives of our children. And uh, I would like to get in the way of that. If you're not interested in getting in the way of that for the sake of your children, grandchildren, then get out of the way and I'll do it. Okay? I want to be a problem to those who, uh, to, who do that. Okay? Uh, my wife and I, we've got in the way of this by homeschooling. It's not why we homeschool, but it has spared our children uh, a thousand uh, ills uh, through that. Uh, by the way, we homeschool so that we will be the primary influence for our children for Christ. You understand? It's not because I think I can better educate my children. Uh, I, it's, it's yet to be proven, if I have. Uh, 
but uh, influencing them for Christ is, is it. Yeah. I don't believe, and I've stated this before, that we can stop the tsunami of moral depravity in our world, in our country, in our county. Uh, but I want to do all that I can to, to slow it down. Uh, and I, I want to encourage God's people to join the effort to do that. Um, and, and maybe, you know, personally, I'm not, uh, I'm not much for uh, running away from a fight, uh, whether it's uh, immediately mine or immediately. Uh, I like to get involved. Uh, I, I'm not into moving to another state to avoid it. Uh, and I don't make a good pacifist. The thought of any number of those things haunts me with, with a feeling of abandonment. Uh, people are being hurt by the way our city and county and our world are being governed. And if I flee or don't stand and fight, uh, I feel like I would have abandoned those who can use my assistance. Uh, I quoted this verse a few weeks ago in regard to doing what uh, we could to keep the YMCA, the YMCA out. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Uh, I think we got a lot of power in our hands. Uh, those to whom good is due, of course, is our children, our grandchildren. Uh, to those whom good is due is the weak and the vulnerable. These people have no control uh, over the world that they're growing up in. And so, you know, for me, with one hand, I want to keep the world at bay as with the other hand, I want to share the gospel with the weak and vulnerable. Uh, and I need to avoid uh, making this a fist and swinging at the world because that's not really helpful. But um, I want to help. I want to do something, okay? Jesus often stood between the Pharisees and the people, rebuking the Pharisees for their evil and preaching the gospel to the people. Uh, I want to be a voice in the ear of as many of those who govern as I can and I want to be a thorn in the flesh of those who would advance evil. And that can be kind of fun, by the way. Okay. I want to get the gospel to as many as I can. And, uh, and when I have the chance, I want to keep evil at bay. Obviously, I believe there's a time to run. Uh, but I, I think there's a time to stand your ground. We've decided uh, as a family that if Washington State government comes after our children in any way, that would uh, negatively affect their faith, their morality, or education. We would flee to another state. Uh, but none of that's happening at the moment. And besides, if we fled to another state, as soon as our kids graduated and left the house, guess what I would do? The fight is right here. Okay, so that's what I would do. I would come back to all places. So it's not, that, those things aren't happening here. And so I believe it's time to stand. I believe it's time to try to secure a better society for the weak and the vulnerable. And I don't even know all the ways we can do that, but there's a couple people in here. Uh, there's a lot of minds that are sober, and uh, we can pray for wisdom. We can pray for opportunity. Now, real quick, when it comes to Christians uh, seeking public office, uh, I believe that Christians should be in various elected positions in government. But before any believer ventures out into that to pursue office, they should, they should have sober-minded, godly people like those men who sit on the church's elder board tell them whether or not first it's a good fit for them to be in government. They should also be trained well in the scriptures, trained well in the scriptures so they might honor God and represent his church well. And before and 
especially during their time in office, they should have a strong body of men to hold them accountable to God's word and give them wisdom to lead. I believe that. The same principle given in Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 through 20 should apply to all Christians in office. God required that every king of Israel have a copy of the scriptures for him to read every day that he would learn to fear the Lord, his God, and be careful to observe all the words in it, that his heart would not be lifted above his brethren, that he would not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. Too many so-called Christians in politics are a, a black eye to the faith. Yeah. Every Christian in office should be well acquainted with God's word and a capable practitioner of it because the reputation of Christ is at stake. Some of you have jobs with access to people in government. I believe that you're in a position where you can build rapport with them and influence them. And so I would pray yourself, I will pray for you that God would grant you the ability, the opportunity to persuade those people. You know, Daniel, John, and Paul, they risked their lives trying to influence those kinds of people for good. Now, none of us at this juncture in American history have that kind of risk. Let's not wait until it comes to that before we do. Don't shy away from wisely and winsomely influencing government officials and how they govern, remembering their soul and the souls that they govern. And I believe that we have more influence than we think. And wherever we lack it, I believe God will provide it because he desires souls and he loves righteousness as much as he hates evil, okay? And he wants more righteousness in this world, amen? Let me leave you with this and then we'll, we'll pray. Why don't you stand up for, for... It's not a benediction, it's more of a charge. It's not from our forefathers, don't worry. I guess it's from our forefathers, but his name was Paul, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And just to slip in there, John says that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. So Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand Stand, therefore, having girded your waist, with, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the example of John and Paul and Daniel. Lord, there's, there's also Joseph and others that influenced kings and governors and simply because their lives, they need the gospel. And Lord, they have great influence on the lives of other people. And so Lord, help us not to shy away. Help us not to fear the label of being political by trying to influence those that govern over the lives of people. Lord, you've ordained government for, for very specific things. Help us to try to educate and keep our government accountable to those things. Help us to be wise. Lord, give us opportunity. Help us to be, as your word says, to be gentle as doves and as wise as serpents, Lord. Lord, thank you for my church family. 
I'm just so thankful for them. I love them. And I pray that you would indeed give them opportunity, not just for government officials, Lord, but for every soul that uh, you might put in their path. So bless them. Lavish your grace upon my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.